you have your Bibles, I ask you to open up to the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. Um, if we haven't met before, my name is Matt McClay. I'm the student pastor I'm here at Lewis Memorial. Uh, we will always miss Pastor Lemming when he's out of town. We're looking forward to him um, being back with us uh, soon. Uh, but as you're turning there to uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, I want to share a story with you that uh, might kind of get us thinking about the theme of this passage and the theme of our, our time here in the Word today. Have you ever met someone famous by accident? Um, you know, maybe after the service you can talk to the person next to you and kind of let them know the most famous person that you've ever met and had a conversation with. Well, I was for about six months, I worked in Washington, D.C. I was part of, a, part of a college internship program. They have 13 young adult men living in a townhouse together, right behind the Supreme Court, about two blocks behind the Supreme Court. And what was really interesting is we, felt we discovered that there were some senators that lived in the townhouses next to us and that there, was, there were two Supreme Court justices that lived around the block. Well, one time, I was a little late getting to the Cannon House office building where I worked, so I was you know, kind of putting, you know, putting my sport coat on and grabbed my, 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 my briefcase, and I was headed down the steps of the townhouse, and I wasn't really looking where I was going, and I walked right into a man who was carrying a large cup of coffee. I don't know if you've ever had this experience before, but this large cup of coffee then proceeded to spill on my shirt and on his shirt, and... I was, in such a, I, was, I was in such a haste that I really didn't look to see who the person was that I ran into. And then when I looked up, I realized it was United States Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. Um, and once I realized who it was, I tried to apologize profusely. Um, and he was very gracious. And he said something to the effect of, well, I usually keep a change of clothes in my office, so you're, you're, you're fine. Don't worry about it. He asked me a little bit about where I was from, you know, what I was doing, how, where I was working in Washington, D.C. And I again apologized for um, what I had done. And he said this. He said, I'm sure you're just the first of many surprises that I'll have today. <laughs> what would it take for you to be surprised by God's power um, in your life? We're going to be considering a story from God's Word today that is a story of some power that God is working in some surprising places and through some surprising people. So as, as we work our way through this story and as we journey through this story, I want you to ask yourself the question, where, where am I in this story? Um, is there a place in this story where God's power is at work that resonates with where I am in the season of life that I'm in. And I believe that by trusting in God and taking him at his word, we can discover his power at work in some surprising places this morning. So let's read this passage together, 1 Kings chapter 5, or excuse me, 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. But we'll have a time of prayer and we'll jump in. So let's, let's read together. Naaman, commander of the army of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Samaria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he, Naaman, went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter of the king of Israel, which read, with this, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel heard, read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God 
to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider, see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elijah, the man of God, heard, Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood outside the door of Elisha's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. He went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But the servant, his servants came near to him and said, My father, this is a great word. The prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he, Naaman, went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he, ret- then he returned to the man of God, Naaman, returning to Elisha. He and all his company, and he came and stood before them, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So now accept a present from your servant. But he, Elisha, said, As sure as the Lord lives... Before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he still refused. And Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself before the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. Let's pray together. Lord, we think about this miracle um, that is recounted in your word, um, that is accounted for in your word. We think about the work you did and the life of Naaman. We think about the surprising places in which you were at work in this story. And Lord, I pray that this morning, as we read through this story and as we consider this story, So we look at the life of Naaman and we look at the lives of some others in this story, Lord, that we'll see that your power is at work even in places we're not looking. So I pray that you'll give us eyes to see you for who you are. I pray that your name will be lifted up. Um, I pray that even in this Old Testament story, uh, we'll see the greatness of our Savior, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Second Kings is an interesting book, and this story of Naaman is an interesting story because it happens during a very tumultuous time in Samaria, or northern Israel. Under the rule of David, the nation of Israel was united, and under the rule of his son Solomon, the nation of Israel expanded to probably its, 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 its wealthiest point in history and its, its most expansive point in history. But if you've read through the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you know what happens. Um, there, there is a division in the family of David, in the family of Solomon. The nation of Israel is split into a northern kingdom and into a southern kingdom. And the books of First and Second Kings explain what happened under the kings in the northern kingdom and the kings in the southern kingdom. And we come here to Second Kings chapter 5, and this story centers on the northern kingdom, which is also at this point called Samaria. Uh, The king of northern Israel, the king of Samaria's name was King Jehoram. 
We don't know much about King Jehoram. We don't, we don't talk about him much, but we talk a lot about his dad. His dad was King Ahab. What do, we, what, what do we know about Ahab? We know him for his wife, right? What was his wife's name? His wife's name was, was Jezebel. Don't run into many, many, many ladies, many girls called Jezebel these days. Maybe you run into some people you think should be called Jezebel, but we don't run into many people called Jezebel. He came from a wicked family at this point. The Bible says in chapter 4 of 2 Kings that King Jehoram did what was evil in the eyes of of the Lord. He was not a good king. He was not a God-fearing king, but he was king over God's people. And at the time, Syria was to the north, and they were making military incursions into Samaria, into northern, uh, into northern Israel. And these were skirmishes that would, that would happen, and, and, and they would flare up, and they would settle down, and they would flare up, and they would settle down. And this, this story is nestled in between two major military incursions. We'll hear more about the, the previous one here in a moment. And after this story happens, we read in 2 Kings chapter 6 that an all-out military incursion was made by Syria into northern Israel. But in the middle of this, we have this, this story of Naaman, a Syrian commander in the army. What's so interesting, there's several interesting aspects of the story. The first is that it's short. Uh, some of you are like, well, that's great. You know, the, the, the youth pastor came and he's preaching on a short story in the Bible. Maybe that means it's going to be a short sermon. Jury's still out on that. But it's a short story. A professor of English in the 20th century wrote this about the story of Naaman, that it's as perfect an example of a short story as can be found in human speech. So it's a short story, but it's also a true story. This is a story out of the Word of God. This is a true story from the word of God. This is a historical thing that happened. When we read the miraculous, sometimes we think, is this, is this some kind of allegory? Could this be explained by, could this be explained by empirical ways of, of evaluating things? This was a miracle in the true word of God. This is a true story from the word of God, but it's also a powerful story. This was a story that Jesus referenced in his hometown of Nazareth. And when he referenced that story in Luke chapter 4 in his hometown of Nazareth, it resulted in him being escorted out of the synagogue. Because it's a powerful story. It's a surprising story that God would work in, in, in this man, Naaman, who, who, who was not a Jewish person, was, was a Gentile, was, was not part, did not grow up in, in, in inside the covenant of God's people at the time. So it's a powerful story. So what we're going to do over the next few minutes is we're going to read through this story. We're going to consider this story. And then there are four observations that we're going, to, we're going to look at together. Four ways, surprising ways, in which God is at work in this story. So we're going to start by meeting the man, Naaman, in verse 1 of chapter 5. And the first thing we learn about Naaman is he was a great man. Just look at some of the terms that are used to describe Naaman. Naaman was the commander of the army. We look at our military commanders and leaders. We, help, we hold them in high regard, and, and, and Naaman was the, the top dog. He was the commander of the army of the king of Syria. It also says that he was a great man. This speaks to not only his position as commander in the army, his, his personality. He was a great man with his master and in high favor. His boss believed in him. The king thought highly of him. And you'll see later in the story how highly the king thought of him. 
He was someone who could maybe walk into it. I'm not one of those people. Maybe one of you, some of y'all are those kind of people. You can just walk to a room, into a room, and everybody just gravitates to you, and the room just lights up when you when when, when you come in the door. Naaman was likely one of those type of people. He was a great man and in high favor. We also see his experience. He was get, he was a, he was given victory to Syria. The Lord had given him victory. Um, as the commander of the army of Syria. It's probably speaking of that former military incursion into northern Israel. And it's interesting that the Lord, we'll see here later how God's working in his life. It was God that was giving Naaman this success. God was setting Naaman up, we'll learn later, for an opportunity to experience him, to experience God. But God was working in the life of Naaman, gave him victory over uh, to, to Syria, gave vic- through him was given victory to Syria. Uh, one of the uh, Jewish historians, uh, Josephus, writes, um, we don't see this in the Bible, but you know, it's, 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 it's known in history, it's believed, supposed in history, that it was Naaman, who we read about um, in 1 Kings 22, who was the one who, at a venture, took his arrow and pierced the armor of king, evil King Ahab and brought victory to Syria. So can you imagine if that were the case, and it certainly would fit with, with his personality and his character, if that were the case, he was a hero. He came home back to Syria to a hero's welcome. It says he was a mighty man of valor. Naaman, by all accounts, was a great man, a guy you want to know, a guy you want to be. But then there's that little conjunction there at the end of verse one, isn't there? He was a great man, a mighty man, man of valor, but he was a leper. He was a leper. You know, leprosy in the Bible can denote various kinds of skin abnormalities, but what we'll see, particularly later in verse seven, is that this condition that Naaman had that was labeled as leprosy uh, was likely leprosy proper, today known as Hansen's disease. There's a man by the name of Dr. Paul Brand, and he is, uh, he is an expert on Hansen's disease. And he, he, writes, he writes the following about Hansen's disease and, and, and the effect that it has on the human body. First, it's caused by a bacteria that attacks the nerves in the skin. It anesthetizes the body through extreme pain until feeling is lost, usually starting in the face and then in the extremities. It begins with white patches on the head or the hands, and it spreads, and spongy swellings begin to grow. The, the extremities of the, vo- the body will eventually absorb themselves into the body. Blindness sets in. Teeth fall out. And the infection, the disease, eventually spreads to the vital organs and becomes fatal. So when we read here, read here that Naaman had leprosy, he essentially was given a death sentence. When we read about Naaman, he was going to experience some of the most extreme physical, emotional, and relational pain that anyone could ever experience. So he was a great man, but he was a great man with a great problem. And isn't it interesting the way that God (laughs) brings things together for Naaman, this great man with a great problem, but it's surprising who you read about next. Verse two, it says, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. 
We believe this girl to be young. That, that, that term little girl refers to someone at least under the age of 11, probably younger. So this was a, a young girl who was carried off from her native land. I can't even imagine uh, what the trauma would be for this girl, what the trauma would be for her family to be removed from her family, removed from her homeland, removed from the place where everybody speaks the language that she's most familiar with, and to be put into an environment where she is a servant to people she doesn't know. That's what happened to her. What a great catastrophe. She either would have been carried off by Naaman himself in one of those raids into Israel, or it's possible that someone else had captured her and that she had been put up for sale on a slave market, which was common during that day, and that she was, she was purchased or she was taken by Naaman for the service of his wife. What a terrible, terrible catastrophe for this little girl. I would harbor a lot of resentment. Um, I would be distraught. I can't imagine how I would feel at such a young age. But we see something else surprising in verse 3. We see that this little girl who had a great catastrophe also had great faith. Verse 3, she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. This little girl, even though she was young, she remembered that that back in her homeland that there was, a, there was a man of God in her homeland and that God was working in her homeland even though the leader, the king of her homeland was someone who did evil in the eyes of God. She remembered what her parents had taught her about God as one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. She remembered that there was a God who was a real God, who was a healing God, and he was a great God. And somehow, only through the grace of God, she had compassion on Naaman, one who was, maybe was the one who had taken her from her family or was at the very least complicit as one of the leaders of those ventures into Israel, as complicit in her being taken from her family and being put into this position of service to his wife. And she said, oh, would that my Lord, would that Naaman were with the prophet who's in Samaria. She's talking about Elisha. He would cure him of his leprosy. What faith? We're going to see later that, that the curing of leprosy was not something that people experienced at that time. She had no, didn't necessarily have historical basis for making that claim. She had faith. So Naaman goes in verse 4 and appeals to his king. That's Ben-Hadad II is the name of the king. Appeals to the king saying this. Thus and so spoke the Lord from the land of Israel, verse 4. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. This was how much favor that, that, that Naaman had with this king, is that when he explained my, this, this girl that we've carried off from Israel, she, she, she says, there's, there's a man in Israel, there's someone in Israel who can heal me of this leprosy. The king says, go. He says, go. So we see an, an ordinary girl here with some extraordinary faith. And it is an interesting as we contrast it with the next person that we're going to meet. So the king of Israel, we read in the second part of verse 5, he loads Naaman down with all the resources he would ever need for this trip, for this journey. Uh, most of the time, there, there were 
quote-unquote healers in other parts of the world, and these quote-unquote healers would chart, always watch out for healers who think, who, 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 they say they'll heal you, but they really want your money, and that was the case in many, even, even thousands of years ago at this point, uh, there, there were healers around the world, and they would require exorbitant sums of money to do these incantations, these chants, and wave their hands and, and, and supposedly heal people. So he had, all the, he had all these resources. It says he had 10 talents of gold, 6,000 shekels, excuse me, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. That didn't mean that Naaman was like a high-maintenance person and needed all kinds of changes of clothing. That, that has to do with rolls of raiment, rolls of, of, of cloth um, that were expensive and that were valuable, that were used in exchanges um, back in the time. So he was sent with great resources, and he was also sent with great expectations. Look at verse 6. He brought the letter... To the king of Israel. So this letter was written from the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad II, to the king of Israel, Jehoram. And Naaman gave Jehoram, the king of Israel, that letter. And this is what it read. When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Uh, more uh, specific reading of the second part of this letter would, would go like this. And you shall recover him of his leprosy. This letter contained an imperative by the king of Syria to the king of Israel saying, you shall cure him of his leprosy. How do you think the king of Israel felt? How do you think Jehoram felt? He's already been attacked and he barely survived the last incursion into his country. How do you think he felt when he received this letter from the king of Syria saying, you shall heal this man of his leprosy. Well, we see in verse seven, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes. That wasn't like a Hulk kind of a move. He tore his clothes. That was, that, that, that was, a, that was an ancient Middle Eastern way of expressing grief. He tore his clothes. Why was he full of grief? Why was he full of fear? He said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to cure that this man of his leprosy? Here was why he was grieved. Because leprosy could not be cured. And because he was so far removed from a relationship with God, he who should have been one of the people who was representing God to his people was so far removed from a relationship with the one true God, he only saw it one way. He said, am I God to kill and to make alive. This is another reason to believe that, that Naaman had Hansen's disease proper. It wasn't just a skin, it wasn't just a skin issue. It wasn't just you know, some sort of abnormality. This was leprosy proper. He was facing a death sentence. He said, oh my God, to kill and make alive. He knew that only God, only God could cure something as fatal as leprosy. And he was looking at it not through a spiritual perspective, but through a political perspective. We never do that, right? Look at what he says at the end of verse 7. Only consider, he is seeking a quarrel with me. He thinks, this is a geopolitical chess move that King Ben-Hadad up in Syria is doing to put me in an impossible position to use it as a pretext to invade my land again. We barely survived the last one. There's no way we can hold up against another attack. He's distraught. He tore his clothes. We see a king who should be powerful and who probably projected himself as powerful that was really powerless. But as we keep reading, we find another surprise. In verse eight, 
we meet Elisha. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Let him come now to me that he may know there's a prophet in the land of Israel. We don't know how Elisha discovered that Jehoram had become distraught and had torn his clothes. But it's mentioned three times in this passage that Jehoram had torn his clothes. Could it have been the talk of the town? Man, our king, if our king's in trouble, if our king is distraught, we're in trouble. But Elisha, he doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see it politically like Jehoram sees it. He sees it spiritually. He says, bring him on down here. Let him know that there is a God, there is a prophet, there's a man of God, that God's word still works in the land of Israel. So Naaman, it says, he came down with his, verse 9, with his horses and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Can you imagine the, can you imagine the entourage that, that Naaman would have had coming with him? He had chariots and he had horses. He had to have a way to haul all that gold and all that silver and all that raiment. Have you ever been at a place where the presidential motorcade has, has driven by? I know we've had some presidents in our, in our area before. And when that motorcade drives by, it's not one car, right? It's a series of cars and there's secret service and there's SUVs. And everybody knows something big is happening. When Naaman with his big entourage pulls up to the house, a little old Elisha, the, the prophet, who was not a popular man at the time, there's a stark contrast. Elisha called for Naaman to come to him instead of going to Elisha. When Naaman came to Elisha's house, Naaman was expecting, you're going to see, he was expecting Elisha to come out and roll the red carpet. He had an important person coming to his house. But it's very interesting and it's very surprising how it works. In verse 10, Elijah, Elisha sent a messenger to him. Elisha didn't even come out and speak to him directly. Why, why, did, why, did, why did he do that? Well, he had to bring Naaman low so God's word could be made high. What did he say? What did the messenger from Elisha say to Naaman? He said, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and you shall be clean. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Not many steps to that, right? <laughs> go down to the river, dip yourself seven times, and you're good. If I was Naaman, maybe I would say, well, that's probably the easiest thing I could ever do. I'm going to do that. But in verse 11, we see another surprise. Naaman was angry and went away. Why would Naaman turn down this opportunity? Well, what we learn is that Naaman had a pride problem. Naaman was angered by his visit to Elisha because it didn't meet his expectations. Naaman was preparing and he was expecting Elisha to come out, roll out the red carpet and to maybe honor him by bowing to him or by, 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 by making some sort of entreaty to him and, 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 and to welcome him into his home. But Elisha didn't do that. He was expecting some kind of flamboyant ritual with, with, with incantations and with waving of the hands and, and, and to, to heal him there on the spot, but that was not what happened. Naaman had to realize that he was not going to be the hero of this story. So Elisha didn't meet Naaman's expectations. He also didn't cater to Naaman's preferences. Naaman says, or Naaman says, behold, I thought 
that he would surely come out, and here it is, to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? In a way, Naaman's right. The rivers of Syria were better than the Jordan River. On my bucket list, I would love to one day be able to go to the Holy Land and walk where Jesus walked and see the places that Jesus saw and where Jesus performed his miracles. But right now, I just kind of have to live vicariously through some of y'all and the, you know, the videos and the pictures and the, the, the things that I, I, get to, I get to learn in my study. And what is, what is known about the Jordan River is it's normally very muddy. It's a fast-moving river, meaning it churns things up from the riverbed. It's not a clear river. And Naaman is saying, I've got these rivers back in my homeland of Syria, the Abana, which comes from the snow that is melted in the mountains and it rushes down this cool water over rocks and it's clear. Or I could wash in the Farpar, which is clear and it has these mineral properties that made it known later to the Greeks and the Romans as the river of gold. I left Syria where there's these beautiful rivers that I could wash in that are even known to have some, you know, some healing type properties. He wants me to I came all the way down here to be told to go into the Jordan River. That'd be my, me, like me t- telling you to take a fishing trip to the Guyandot instead of the Greenbrier. I mean, you can catch the native brook trout in the Greenbrier. In the uh, Guyandot, you may catch a 10-ply truck tire, right? And, and, and he, he's upset. It didn't meet his preferences, Most of our pride has to do with our expectations and our preferences. And according to Naaman, Elisha struck out, and he was angry. So it says that he went away in a rage. In verse 13, there's another surprise. There's a voice of reason, and it comes through Naaman's servants. There are a lot of bad things we could say about Naaman, but maybe one of the good things we could say about him is he surrounded himself with some pretty good level-headed people from the servant girl to these, the, these servants who, who were part of his entourage. And it says in verse 13, the servants came near to him and said, my father, it's a great word. The prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He's actually said, wash and be clean. These servants raise a great point that if Elisha would have asked Naaman to do, go on some great journey to cure his leprosy, he would have done it. If Elisha would have asked uh, Naaman to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, Naaman would have done it. If Elisha would have said, I want all the gold you brought and I want all the silver you brought and all the raiment you brought, Naaman would have done it. And they say, this is so simple. This is so easy. Why not do it? And thank God for people who are thinking logically when we're thinking emotionally. And this is exactly what was happening here. Naaman Verse 14, he went down into that muddy Jordan River and dipped himself. That's a Hebrew word that has to do with went under the water. It eventually was translated into the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is where we get the word baptized, baptizo from. He went down into the water seven times, dipped seven times. And the first time he went down into the water and he came up and his leprosy was still there and Went down another time, the second time, and it was still there. A third time, it was still there. A fourth time, it was still there. A fifth time, it was still there. A sixth time, it was still there. And when he came back up the seventh time, it says that his flesh 
was restored like the flesh of a little child, and it was clean. This was a complete healing. This was not a buy a little extra time. This was a 100% better than he was before the leprosy, complete healing. His skin was totally restored, and his skin was better than any person of his age could ever be. It was a complete, complete healing. What would you do after an incredible victory like that? I think I would want to, uh, I think I'd want to go show people exactly what God did. Some people today would be calling Penguin Books or Zondervan and say, hey, I want to write a book. Clean skin and how I achieved it. That's not what he, that's not what he did. He didn't, he didn't, you know, obviously he didn't have a phone, but you know what we would be doing, we'd be getting at our phone, we'd, you know, we, we'd, we'd, we'd be taking pictures and putting it on Instagram, some kind of you know, caption like, look at the glow up in the Jordan River that I just got, you know, hashtag no filter, and, and, and maybe he would want to run home and, you know, and, and, and show his family and show his wife, look at this, you know, maybe he'd be like, hey, you know, talk to his wife, hey, you know, you got those crow's feet in your eyes, look at my skin, you know, he, he, not what he did. It says in verse 15, he returned to the man of God. He went back to Elijah. By the way, that was a, that, 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 for him to leave where Elisha was, to go to the closest point of the Jordan River would have been a third of his way back home to Syria. So he had to backtrack. He had to turn back around to go back to the man of God, back to Elisha. Verse 15, he returned to the man of God and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but Israel. Wow. Do you realize what a statement that was, particularly in the time and the place where Naaman lived? Naaman lived in a time and a place where it was believed that there were many gods, that, that different countries had diff- and different people had different gods that they, were wor- that they worshiped. So maybe I would worship one God and you would worship another God and he would worship another God. And, and maybe I ask you to pray to your God for this and you to pray to your God for this and I'll pray to my God for you and you and you. And there were all these different gods that, 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 that people would, would pray to, these little g, these fake gods. It was called polytheism, right? But what did God say? to the people of Israel, the one true God. What, what was the first thing they were supposed to learn as kids? Deuteronomy 6, 4, hero God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. And what do we see? What do we see name? We see that his, it wasn't just his skin that was new. His life was new. He said, I know there's only, there's no God in all the earth but in Israel. That's a statement. That's a big statement. So accept now a present from your servant. Naaman wants to give all the, all the gold and all the silver to Elisha as, as a way of, of, of thanking Elisha. But Elisha says, as the Lord lives whom I stand, before whom I stand, I'll receive none. Elisha says, take your gold, take your silver, take your precious clothing. That's not going to help you whatsoever. Elijah did not want Naaman to leave thinking that he had any part in the change in his life, that he had any part in the work that God did in his life. So in verse 17, we see, Naaman says, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. That seems a little strange to us. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. It was believed at the time that, that, that 
if, if you were going to worship the God of Israel, you were going to worship a, a false God from another country, you would, ta- you would take earth from that, that place where, that God, where, where, where God was, and you would take it with you so that when you prayed and when you sacrificed, you could stand on that holy ground, that sacred ground. And that's what we see Naaman wanting to do. He wants to worship the one true God wherever he is. And then we see, so we've seen that he changes his mind about God, right? There's only one God. We see that he changes his mind about himself. I I can't buy God's favor. I can't earn what God did in my life. It's only by God's grace and by God's grace alone. We see he also changed his mind about sin. We see in Naaman's heart a sensitivity to sin, and we see that in the final portion of this passage here. He's concerned, and it's, it's, this section's a little wordy. It's maybe a little, it's sometimes a little difficult to, to read and a little back and forth, but essentially what Nehemiah is saying is when I go back to my home country, I am indebted to this king, Ben-Hadad II. And the king to whom I am indebted, he worships a false god. And part of my service is that I have to, I'm the king's bodyguard, essentially. I have to accompany the king when he goes into this this pagan temple to worship his false god. And his concern here that he vocalizes to Elisha is that God would not count, count sin against him to ensure that he wasn't sinning when he was doing that, when he was doing part of the service that he was conscripted into. We see a sensitivity to sin, and that's what God does in our hearts when we trust in him, right? We, he, he, we, he, we have a change of mind about God. We have a change of mind about ourselves that we can't buy our, we can't, we can't, we can't buy our salvation. We can't buy God's grace, and we begin to develop a sensitivity to sin. So we see God at work in some really incredible, incredible places in this story. And by taking him at his word and trusting in him, I believe we can discover God at work in this story and, and in our lives in four particular places. And that's where I would like to spend the remainder of our time this morning. Thinking about these four places, we see God at work here and we often see God at work in our lives. And the first place we see God at work is we see that God is at work in ordinary people. Let's go back and talk about this little girl. You know, her name is never mentioned. Here's how we, the only way we have to refer to her, the little girl from the land of Israel. You know that word little in Hebrew? It can can mean several things, and it, it can mean diminutive, unimportant, lesser, Insignificant. It was not only used to refer to children. King Solomon, as he was being coronated as king and he was struggling with how overwhelmed he felt by the duties of that office, he used that word to describe how unqualified he felt to be the king of Israel, how lesser, how insignificant he felt. This word here is not only meant to let us know that it was a girl that was little in stature, in size, she was also little in the eyes of people around her. From our perspective, from the world's perspective, she would have been the worst possible choice to speak God's word and God's truth to Naaman, wouldn't she? First off, she was little. Second, she was a girl, and the testimony of, of women at that time was, was like discounted. Third, she was from the land of Israel, 
a place in which Syria was attacking, a place in which Syria looked down upon. There was every reason for her not to speak up, wasn't there? There was every reason for her just to be quiet, to hold on to the maybe anger and, 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 and to the grief and to the difficulty that was involved in her life and being taken from her home and taken up to this place of service. But we see God at work in a powerful way. Every time I read that statement of hers in verse 3, I think, what faith. I think, what faith and such a big faith and such a, a little girl. I think maybe her parents, as she was younger during her formative years before she was captured, maybe her parents took Deuteronomy chapter 6 to heart and they impressed God's word on their child and they wrote it on the doorposts of their houses They talked about it as they were coming and as they were going to where when she was left as a little girl to stand on her own, she could stand for God. I believe there's a lesson in here about God being at work in ordinary people. You know, I think one of the, one of the, I know we mean well, but one of the disservices we do to the next generation is when we talk to them, we apologize for them having, I've caught myself saying it, maybe you said it before, telling them, I'm so sorry that you have to grow up in a world, in the world that we're in. What if instead of saying that, we pull a lesson from Esther chapter four from Mordecai and we say, you are here for such a time as this. And we dig in and we prepare them for the world that they're gonna face because God has them here for a reason. Just like he had that little girl there for a reason. And sometimes we think because we're ordinary that, that God won't use us. We think that maybe, maybe you're the opposite of the little girl. You're in a place where your, your, your day consists of doctor's appointments, of nurses coming in to take care of you, or your day consists of you taking care of, of, of maybe a mom or a dad or someone who, who is advanced in years, and your world that used to be so big has become so small. This girl was maybe an unwilling missionary, but there she was. And you may feel yourself to be kind of trapped in, a, in an area with little influence, but there you are. This girl in this position of unimportance made a big difference in Naaman's life through the power of God. So we see the power of God through ordinary people. We also see the power of God through his word. At that time, there was little cultural regard for God's word. Uh, and Elisha was the prophet of God. Hebrews chapter one tells us how God spoke to people in the past and how God speaks to people now. Hebrews chapter one says that at various times, in many ways, God spoke through our fa- or to our fathers through the prophets. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Second Kings was written, this story, this true story from the word of God occurs during a time when God was speaking through his prophets and God was speaking through Elisha. Elisha was speaking the inspired word of God to Naaman. Today, we have the inspired word of God. We have the prophets and those in the Old Testament who look forward to Jesus. We have the historical accounts of what Jesus said and what he did and how he lived and how he died for us in the gospels. And we have an expansion of the teachings of Jesus in the epistles and the remaining books of the Old Testament. We have the word of God. But the problem is, just like there is little cultural regard for God's word and God's man, Back then, there's little regard for God's word today. 
you know, I'm 37 years old, so maybe I'm allowed to say this. God's not going to rewrite his word to accommodate the culture of our generation. We have to believe not only that God said what he said, but that we can take him at his word and we can trust him, even when following God's word goes against the grain of culture. We have to believe it. Um, the evangelist D.L. Moody said this about this, this section with, with, with Naaman. Naaman had marked out a way of his own for the prophet to heal him, and he was mad because he didn't follow his plans. And how often is that the way that we approach God's word? We say, God, I want you to do something in my life, but I don't want you to do it from, from 2 Kings. God, I want you to do something in my life, but I definitely don't want you to do it from Romans 1. Yeah, God, I want you to do something in my life, but please don't, don't talk to me about sexual ethics. I want you to do something in my life, but please don't talk about being sober-minded, about being grounded, about being focused on, on reaching others for Christ. It's God's word. It kind of came down to this for Naaman. Naaman had a choice. He could lose his temper or he could lose his pride. He ended up doing both, but he settled on losing his pride. He had to submit to God's word. And there's power in our life when we submit to God's word, even when it's not culturally celebrated. The third way that we see God's power at work, and this is a tough one, we see God's power at work through life-altering pain. Just stop and think about what Naaman was experiencing at this point. It seems like from this passage, Naaman's, uh, Naaman's leprosy was maybe in the early stages. But Naaman had been around long enough. He had traveled the world on his military exploits, exploits long enough to see what his future would be. He knew that as the leprosy spread, that the high regard people had for him would change. That instead of people being attracted to him, people would be repulsed by him. He knew that as he would lose the feeling in his extremities, he would no longer be able to experience the embrace of his wife. He knew that eventually he would start losing functionality and he who was this mighty man of battle would have to be cared for by other people. He knew that eventually it would spread to his vital organs and his life would end possibly by him trying to breathe his last breaths in labored breathing. Naaman's pain ran the gamut. There was obvious physical pain. We see that. There was emotional pain. Not being able to do things for himself, seeing it play out in the lives of others, facing imminent death. There was relational pain. He was gonna lose his respect. No human touch. And how, how, how similar is that sometimes to the pain that we experience in our life? Maybe you're experiencing intense physical pain. Uh, I know many, many, who are, you know, many of you who are shut in and you're not able to be here with us. You're, you're not able to be here with us because of a physical ailment or a physical malady that you're struggling with and you wish it could be gone. You wish it could be over. Sometimes we experience remote, emotional pain because of the things that we've, we've experienced during our life and the trauma and the, and the difficulties that we've had to face. And we experience relational pain. There are people we thought would be there with us. We thought we could rely on and we thought we could depend on and they're gone. People we looked up to that ended up falling from grace. The relational pain in many ways is just as bad as the physical pain. But here's what we see. If Naaman had never experienced pain, he would never experience God. C.S. Lewis has a quote that I use very often because it's one of my favorite, uh, favorite quotes of his. And this is what he says. 
Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. We don't have to enjoy it. We don't have to wish it would continue. We don't have to wish that we could go through it again. But we can take comfort in the fact that God uses our pain to draw us closer to him. And that is exactly what he did in the life of Naaman. The final place that we see God at work is God's powers at work by simple faith. Nehemiah, or excuse me, Naaman, Naaman had a skin problem. He had leprosy, but he had more than a skin problem. He had a sin problem. You know, when God cured Naaman of his leprosy, Naaman continued to live a life, but Naaman is no longer alive today because every one of us has a sin problem that results in, in first off, an immediate spiritual death, but eventually an impending physical death. And Naaman had a skin problem, but he also had a, a sin problem. He needed his life to be changed. You know, like leprosy, sin is deeper than the skin. And there are, you know, the Bible doesn't say that, that, that necessarily that leprosy is, is a sign or leprosy is, is, is a type of sin or a representative of sin, but the parallels are pretty close. Just like, just like sin, leprosy infects and spreads and you can't stop it. Just like sin, leprosy numbs us to the things that can harm us. What historians say is most lepers didn't die from their internal organs shutting down. Most lepers died because they no longer could experience the, the, the feeling that would alert them to trouble. And they would run into things and they would lay by fires and get burnt. It desensitized them to things that could harm them and sin desensitizes us to what is wrong and what harms us. We don't just have a skin problem. <laughs> Maybe we don't have a skin problem. We all have a sin problem. Leprosy was self-destructive in that way. And sin is self-destructive in the same way. What was Nehemiah's problem? It was him. It was his pride. It was his sin. You know, a, a, a recording artist um, today, uh, yeah, every once in a while a blind squirrel can find a nut. A recording, a recording artist uh, said this, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. And I think that's a pretty good way to describe our sin problem. It's not just what's around us, it's what's inside us. But here's the good news. Naaman's sin problem was healed just like his skin problem was healed by simple faith. Wash and be clean. Can it really be that easy? Can it really be that easy to trust in God? There's a misconception sometimes that the people before Jesus, the people of the Old Testament were saved in a different way than the people after Jesus, the people in the New Testament were saved. But there's only ever been since the beginning of time and sin entering the world one way to be saved, and it's by trusting God. It's by faith. Dr. Charles Ryrie was a longtime professor at, or president at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he had a way, he has a way, had a way of putting things very succinctly and he, he, he put it very succinctly the way that people can be saved this way. The basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. The requirement for salvation in every age is faith. And the object of faith in every age is God. There's only one way to be saved. And it's by faith. 
Think about Naaman. He was saved by faith as he trusted God. Adam was saved by faith when he heard of the promised seed in Genesis 3.15 and he saw the sacrifice of the animals to cover his nakedness in Genesis 3.21. Abraham believed in God. He believed God and it was counted to him, credited to him as righteousness. Moses was saved by faith as he identified with God's people rather than identifying with the people of Pharaoh. Rahab was saved by faith by putting her trust and her faith in God when her city was conquered. We could go on and we could go on and we could go on. There's only one way to be saved and it's through faith and it's simple faith. Jesus was the one they were looking forward to. Jesus is the one that we now look back to with gratitude. Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, chapters 13 and 14, you don't need to turn there, but it outlines the process by which someone who is a leper can be made, can, can be brought back into the covenant community of Israel, can be brought back into the temple and back into, into, in, into the community. And what's so interesting about Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, it was never used that we know of until Jesus came to earth. Naaman was a Gentile. He didn't have to go through the process. He, he lived in, in, Syri- in Syria. There's an interesting conversation that is recorded in the Talmud. It's, the Talmud is not the Bible, but it's a collection of ancient Jewish writings. It's it, between, a, between a teacher and a student, and the student asks the teacher, how shall we know him? How shall we know the Messiah? And the teacher says to him, look for him among the, leopards, the lepers, for only he can heal. Even back then, they were looking forward to this person who would have this, this mastery, this power over such a powerful disease of leprosy. And what happened? We can read in the book of Luke chapter 5 how Jesus touched a leper and the leper was healed. And he said, go show yourself to the priest. And the priests are like, where's that policy and procedure manual from Leviticus chapter 13? We haven't had to, they go back into the archives and they blow the dust off it because they haven't had to use it. And for the first time, that procedure is used. Jesus goes on later in Luke to heal 10 more lepers, sends them to the priests. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died in place of our sin, took the penalty of our sin so that we could be given eternal life. Some people think they're too good to be saved, like Naaman. Hey, I got all this, these resources, I got all this silver, I got all this gold, I got all this money. I'm somebody. No, you're not too good to be saved. Naaman needed to come through simple faith. Some people think they're too bad to be saved. If you knew all the things that I did, well, Naaman in many ways was too bad to be saved. He, 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 was, he, he was a brutal warrior. He, he, he took people captive, but Naaman wasn't too bad to be saved either. Naaman was a Gentile. He, he was outside of, uh, at the time God's people but Naaman wasn't too far on the outskirts to be saved because anyone can be saved by simply trusting in Jesus, by placing their faith in God. Wash and be clean. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So I wanna wrap this up by asking the question that I asked at the beginning. Where do you see yourself in this story? Where are you in this story? Are you like the little servant girl? You feel like nobody knows your name? We're gonna have a time of prayer here to close the service and I wanna invite you, if you feel ordinary, unnoticed and unnecessary, to pray and commit your ordinary life to God right there where you are. 
Are you like Elisha and you feel like at times you're the only one who's taking God at his word and standing up for God's word? Pray for boldness. Like Elijah had, like that little girl had in proclaiming God's truth. Are you like Naaman and you're going through or have gone through a season of deep pain? Maybe you'll want to pray something like this. God, will you give me the eyes to see you in the middle of my pain? Or maybe it's possible, especially with the number we have here today, that you don't have a skin problem, but you've realized that you have a sin problem. What's been so incredible is that over the past few weeks, we've seen many people come to trust Jesus right here in this room on Sunday mornings. And maybe you've seen that happen or you've been coming and, and, and you've never put your faith in Jesus, that simple faith. I believe today you can do that. And I believe many still need to do that. You've thought about it, you've prayed about it, you've even planned on it, but you've never done it. The only thing stopping you from having eternal life at this point is you. So do it today. Don't, don't wait. Be the first. It's the right thing to do, and now is the right time to do it. Believe in Jesus.